following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All righty. Well, as you, uh, as you heard there, obviously we have uh, a number of families out with COVID and um, Dave York, Dave Rubel. It appears that I'm the last Dave standing, so I will uh, try to do my best to, to keep it that way. Um, we're going to jump into uh, first, uh, sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning in just a moment. So if you want to get your Bibles out, you can, you can flip over there and we'll read the text in just a minute. As we get started, though, I want you to spend a minute or two just uh, thinking back on what have I given thanks for this week? What am I thankful for? Where have I stopped and paused and given thanks to God? In the last week or two, think, think back through what's, what's that list. And I hope that's something that you do on a regular basis. I hope you take some time on a regular basis to stop and to thank God for all of the blessings in your life. So what would be on that, on that list if that was, uh, that was you, if you were to write those things down? For me, I thank God regularly for my wife. I thank God for my children. I thank God for my grandchildren. I'm grateful for my home, for my job. I'm, depend- I'm grateful for a dependable, dependable vehicles. Thankful for all the other material provision that God has given me and for generally good health. I thank God for a coupon at Kohl's if I need to go and get a new shirt or some new clothes or a new pair of shoes. I'm thankful for this church. Grateful for the opportunities we have together to gather together on Sunday mornings and worship corporately. I'm grateful for all the men and women that I have the privilege of working with. For all of our friends here at this church. I'm grateful for all of you who pray for me, who pray for my family and encourage me in my pursuit of godliness. I'm thankful for all those who serve. There are a lot of people who serve in a lot of ways at this church. And I'm grateful for all of your, your desire to serve the church and to serve the people of this church. I thank God for the spiritual growth that I see in my family. I thank God for the spiritual growth and maturity that I see in all of, of you. I'm, it's good to be thankful and to let God know that we appreciate all that he does for us and all that he provides for us. Now, taking that list, you can narrow it down to... Two or three. If I, had to, if I had to take all those things on my list and pick the two or three that might be most important to me, what would they be? How would you prioritize all of the many, many things that, we've, that we can be thankful to God for? So our text this morning includes another of Paul's prayers for the, the churches that he helped to start. Last week, Bruce did a fantastic job speaking on the topic of prayer. And I don't know about you, but I was, I was very convicted in my own prayer life and that. And um, following on a message I preached a, a number of weeks ago from Ephesians chapter 1 and one of Paul's prayers, I felt it's appropriate for us to, to spend some time again looking at another one of Paul's prayers. Paul's prayers, when I read the prayers of Paul, um, I'm encouraged and I'm inspired and I learn a lot about how, how we should be praying for each other and for the church. So in Paul's letter, uh, in this case, is often the case with Paul. If you've read his letters, if you read his prayers, Paul often begins with, with thanksgiving. And this one is no different. He begins this prayer. He begins this letter with some thanksgiving. We're going to look at that in just a moment. So if you want to stand with me as we read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, as is right. 
because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And here's his prayer. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us today. And Lord, we want to be like Paul, who are grateful people, grateful for the work and the evidence of your grace in each other's life, in growing faith, increasing love, And Lord, we want to be people who are found worthy of your calling. But we need you to do that for us. Lord, this is not something we can do. It's a work of your spirit in us to grow our faith, to increase our love, and to make us worthy. So we pray to that end this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, before he gets into the prayer, he's going to lay a little bit of a a foundation for us. And it's often that Paul begins with with prayer, uh, sorry, with thanksgiving. He often begins his letters to the churches. He often begins his prayer with thanksgiving. So let's talk about that. The first point here, it's right to give thanks to God. Paul, as I said, was a very grateful and a very thankful man. And it's no different in this in this letter. Beginning back in verse 3, it said, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So what we give thanks for reveals what we value the most. If we spend our time being thankful and grateful for material prosperity, it's because that's, that's what we value. We value material prosperity over other signs of God's care for us. If we spend time thankful for the growing faith and increasing love we see in each other, in our family, in our members of this church, it's because that's what we value. We value seeing the work of the Holy Spirit increasing our faith, increasing our love for each other. So we wanted to take note this morning of what Paul spends time thanking God for. And Paul spends his time thanking God for the evidences of grace in the people's lives in the church in Thessalonica. Some of us might find that list a little bit surprising. But God, but Paul is wanting to give thanks for what he sees the, the Holy Spirit doing in those, those people. 
So God, uh, so Paul begins by thanking God for the faith that he sees, sees in the Thessalonians. And he sees it not just growing, their faith not just growing, but growing abundantly. They were growing in their reliance on the Lord. Their faith is increasing. And not simply growing or increasing. As I said, it's growing abundantly. But they aren't, so these are people who are not satisfied with where they are at within their faith. They aren't satisfied with the status quo. They're not allowing themselves to become plateaued. They are continuing to increase and grow in their faith. They are increasing in their trusting of God, and they're straining upward in their Christian maturity. Paul sees that, and he spends time thanking God for what he sees in their lives. Secondly, Paul thanks God that their love is increasing, especially and specifically their love for each other. In John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So their increasing love that Paul was observing was evidence of growing Christian maturity in this church. Paul knew this commandment that Jesus had taught. He's heard it, and he's heard about how the Thessalonians are living this out, how they're experiencing growing love towards each other. And he takes a moment to thank God for what he sees, for he sees that evidence of grace in their lives and in the church. So when our confession of love for Christ does not result in a growing love for others, who also ex- express uh, a love in Christ, who also confess a love for Christ, we should be legitimately asking how serious and accurate our procession, our profession of faith is. Don Carson, D.A. Carson, wrote this. He said, when Christians do grow in their love for each other for no other reason than because they are loved by Jesus Christ and love him in return, that growing love is an infallible sign of grace in their lives. Such love must be the work of God. And it is to God that Paul directs his, his thanks. He goes on and says, this is the stuff of revival. When we see the growing love in each other for no other reason, not because of we, what we do for each other, what we say to each other, simply because of our love for Christ. Don Carson recognizes that. Paul said that and says, that is the stuff of revival. There are examples all around us here at, at CLF. There are many people who invest time in our theology classes. They attend care groups, are involved in Bible studies, prayer meetings, D groups, and numerous other meetings around the week. I'm very aware of many other small groups where it's just be a two or three or four men or women who are gathering to study the word, to study together, to pray together, to encourage each other. All of these things God is using to increase our faith and to increase our love for each other. It gives us discernment, increases our faith, uh, increases our love for each other. And I see that. The pastors see that. The, uh, the other leaders, we see this. And it encourages, encourages us when we see our church growing in faith, when we see your love increasing for each other. And we do stop and spend time thanking God for what we see. So Paul hears these reports about the growing love among the Christians in Thessalonica, and he's struck by it. But he recognizes it only can be, do, be, only, be only due to one thing, and that's because of the work of God in their lives. And Paul then directs his appreciation and his thanks to God. The idea of spiritual growth in areas of faith and love sometimes can be foreign to us. We tend to speak of faith in more static terms as something either we have or we don't have. We hear the phrase, I wish I had your faith. 
We say that like, I wish I had your complexion, or I wish I had your metabolism, or I wish I had your curly hair. We speak of faith as if it was something that's genetically determined. Others will say, I've lost my faith, in a similar way that we say, I've lost my car keys. Faith isn't some kind of commodity, though. Faith is an outcome of our relationship with Christ and our relationship and our trust in God. And like all relationships, it's living, it's dynamic, it grows. There are degrees of faith. Jesus said, O ye ye of little faith, or you of little faith. And elsewhere he says, I have not found any in Israel with such great faith. It's similar with with love. We, We can assume rather helplessly that we either love someone or we don't love them. There's nothing that we can do about that. But love, like faith, is a growing relationship whose, whose growth we can take steps to nurture. My love for my wife has grown over the years. We just celebrated 38 years of marriage. And when I, lo- when I married her, I was deeply in love with her. I was smitten by her beauty. I was moved by her love for Jesus. I was moved by her Christian maturity and her godly character. Now, 38 years later... I can honestly say that my love and my appreciation and my affection for her has greatly increased over the years. I've seen her love for Christ and I've seen her faith grow in those years. I've watched her mature over those years. I've watched her uh, as she's cared for our three children. I've watched her as she's cooked for me, cleaned for me, loved me, prayed for me. My wife prays. If you don't know Pam, she prays a lot. She often wakes up in the night and she'll pray for an hour or two um, just because she's not able to sleep. And she spends that time praying for, for me, for our kids, for all of you. She's a serving woman. She, she's a caring woman. She's a loving, loving woman. And over the time, over my time with her, these 38 years, I can honestly say that my love for her has increased over those years because I've gotten to know her better. If we want our love for Christ, if we want our love for God, if we want our love for each other to increase, then we need to invest in that relationship. Invest in our relationship with the Lord. Invest in our relationship with each other. And that will cause our our, our love and our affection to grow for each other. Although it takes a slightly different format, um, Paul is also grateful that uh, the Thessalonians are, being, are persevering through trials. It's because of their faith and love were increasing that they were spiritually strong enough to endure the trials, the persecution, and the challenges that they were facing. They were spiritually strong enough to endure the rigors, the challenges, the difficulties of persecution that they were facing. Their perseverance, their steadfastness, and their faith were so exceptional that Paul boasts about it. He says, I boast about you in the churches. Paul had heard about their steadfastness. He heard about their faith. He heard about their growing love. And he was hearing about how they were using that and enduring through some difficult times. And he says, I'm boasting about you. I'm boasting about your, your faith to the other churches. We might take that verse and expand it a little bit and rewrite it this way. Have you noticed how powerful, powerfully the grace of God is operating in the lives of the Thessalonians believers? The way they withstand the pressures of persecution and of assorted trials is truly remarkable. It is, com- is it a compelling testimony to the grace of God in their lives, having been fortified by their growing faith and increasing love for each other. They just press on and on. What an example. What an encouragement. And what an incentive for the rest of us. So throughout his expression of thanksgiving, Paul again models for us the proper way to go about thanksgiving. 
He attributes their spiritual growth, their health, their maturity, their growth. He attributes all of that to God. So instead of congratulating them on their faith, instead of congratulating them on their increasing love, he thanks God for these things. This serves as a compelling reminder. It should serve as a compelling reminder for us and how we should go about being grateful for what we see the Lord doing. What to be grateful for and how it should be uh, communicated and put into practice. So there's a lesson for us in this, in this text. So what should our attitude be to fellow, when we see fellow Christians who are growing and maturing in their faith, when they are doing well in some aspect of their Christian life? Is there a way to affirm people without tempting them into pride? There is, and Paul models that for us. He not only thanks God for the Thessalonians, for their faith and love and their steadfastness, he also tells the Thessalonians that he's doing this. He writes it to them in that letter. So we ought to be, he says, we ought always to, be, to thank God for you, and we boast about you, he writes to them. So if there's an example for us to follow then, if we follow this, we can avoid both congratulations, which will tend to corrupt people, and we can avoid a silence, which can tend to discourage us. We want to be able to affirm and to encourage. We want to be able to witness and see people growing in their faith. Then we want to express our gratitude in the most Christian way of all. I thank God for you, brother and sister. I thank him for the gifts he has given you. I thank him for the grace that I see in your life for the love and the gentleness of the Christ that I see in you and being worked out in you. Paul shows us how to affirm and to encourage without flattery. We would do well to adopt this same um, model in our, in our times of being grateful and thankfulness to each other. So when was the last time we considered our spouse, our children, maybe those in our community group, um, the leaders in the church, those who are sitting next to you or in, in front of you or behind you in church this morning? When's the last time we spent some time thanking God for the signs of grace that we see in their lives? Do we make it a source of praise and worship to God as Paul did when we see another Christian growing in their faith, when we see their love increasing, when we see their Christian maturity and their conformity to Christ growing and increasing, when we see this happening under times of persecution and times of trial and, and difficult circumstances? We need to evaluate what it is that we are truly thankful for and why we don't quickly notice those types of things. And we need to use that when we do notice them, we need to be, be, be people who express our gratitude and our thankfulness to God for what we see. We don't want to be people who are greedy when it comes to receiving praise, and we don't want to be stingy when it comes to dispensing it to each other. Charles Spurgeon poses this challenge in regards to these opening verses. He said, I should like to ask... Are we as Christian men and women such that Paul would say of us, we ought to give thanks to God always concerning you, brothers, just as it is fitting, because our faith is flourishing and the love of each one of you all toward one another is increasing. What do you think? Could your nearest and dearest Christian friend feel that he was bound to thank God always for you? If not, why not? Oh, that we may rise into such a happy state that we shall be the cause of gratitude in others. It ought to be so. We ought to glorify God, causing men to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what we want to be, folks. We want to be men and women of God who others see that, see the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and it prompts them in turn to worship and to praise and to thankfulness and gratitude to God.
So moving on, Paul has just revealed to us that the Thessalonian church is also going through some times of challenge, of persecution. And he addresses this in verses 5 to 10. And essentially wants to let them know that vindication is coming. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also were su- are, which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. It can easily be a sermon, maybe a couple of sermons in in just verses 5 to 10. But I just want to make a couple of quick observations before moving on to Paul's prayer. First of all, the New Testament doesn't look on persecution and suffering the way that we tend to do today, the way that 21st century Christians do, especially in the Western world. To us, suffering is often seen as an evil. It's something to be avoided at all costs. The New Testament doesn't gloss over suffering in the people's lives and the lives of the people in the church. Neither does it lose sight of the, pro- the fact that in the province of God, suffering is often the means used by God to bring about growth and maturity in our lives. God uses suffering. He uses affliction. He uses persecution. And he uses tests of our faith as valuable lessons for us. He uses that to develop in us, in, in us character and faith and perseverance. And as James says, he uses that to make us complete and whole and lacking in nothing. So suffering is not, shouldn't be thought of something that may possibly to be avoided by the Christian. For believers, we need to expect it to be inevitable. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul wrote to them and tells them that they were destined for affliction. We live out our lives and we develop Christian character in a world that's dominated by non-Christian ideas. Faith isn't some dainty little thing to be hidden away. Our faith should be robust and it should be tested. It needs to be manifested and it needs to be made strong in the fires of trials and in the furnace of affliction. So we need to embrace these times rather than running from them, wanting to flee from them. When the Lord allows in his sovereignty, allows trials and afflictions and persecution to come on us, we need to embrace it because we've we've read what James has to say. We've read what Paul has to say. We've read what Peter has to say. That the Lord is using those to grow us and to mature us and to make us whole and complete and lacking in nothing. Secondly, the evidence of the righteous judgment of God should not be understood that the Thessalonians were facing this persecution, these trials, because of something that they had done. God was using those persecutions, he was using those afflictions in order to accomplish something in them, that the believers in Thessalonica would be counted worthy of the kingdom. It does not imply that by displaying perseverance and suffering we can earn the right to be found worthy of the kingdom. For Paul, it's always about God and what he's doing in their lives. Since God was allowing the Thessalonians to suffer, they could know that he was using that to prepare them for future glory. So although God was allowing the persecuting, uh, God was allowing those persecuting the Thessalonians some leeway, God was at work in those persecutions and those afflictions. He was on the side of the people in the church. He was sustaining them. He was sanctifying them. 
He was using that persecution as a means to develop their faith, to develop their love, to increase their steadfastness, and preparing them for the day of glory and entry into his, his kingdom. Again, those qualities didn't make them worthy of the kingdom in the sense of them deserving it or trying to earn it. But by through them, he was finding them worthy of the count, be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which they were suffering. So God's transforming grace was at work in their lives in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, to make them worthy of their heavenly inheritance. And third, for believers, there will be a day of vindication. God will reverse the fortunes of both the persecuted and those who are persecuting when Christ comes back. He will, pay, he will pay back trouble to the troublemakers, and he will give relief to those who have been afflicted. It takes discernment to be able to look at a situation, a trial, uh, uh, some kind of affliction or persecution that we're facing, and to, in the midst of that, actually see God's judgment being wrought out on those who are uh, behind all of that. So when we see persecutions, when we see afflictions, we can often be prone to wonder, where has God gone? Why am I suffering this? Help me get out of this. It may seem to you that maybe God has disappeared. You're wondering where he's gone. But the answer is, in the midst of that, God hasn't disappeared. He's right there. He's working in you through that affliction, through that trial of your your faith, through that test of your faith, through that uh, persecution to grow you and to mature you. So God is there, and he is working. Paul saw that, and we need to be aware of that as well. John Stott wrote, he is allowing his people to suffer in order to qualify them for his heavenly kingdom. He's allowing the wicked to triumph temporarily, but his just judgment will fall upon them in the end. Thus Paul sees evidence that God's judgment is right in the very situation in which we might see nothing but injustice. So we need the same spiritual discernment. We need to say that same eternal perspective that Paul had. And the Thessalonian success, so instead of, instead of flattering them, he thanked God for the evidence of his grace. In their sufferings, instead of complaining, he thanked God for the evidence of his justice in their lives. So now we're going to move on to the prayer itself. So if we're grateful for what we see God doing in the lives of the people around us, and if we are determined to live with our eyes open to eternity, and having that foremost in our minds, how would we pray or how should we pray? So let's start, take a look at the content of Paul's prayer. He says, to this end, and then two requests follow after that. First one is that God would make them worthy of his calling. Verse 11 says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. For, call, for Paul to be called um, by God means that talk, he's talking about their salvation, that they belong to God, that they're accepted as one of his, that they are one of his children. And nowhere is this clearer than in Romans 8, verse 29. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul knows that we are not called by God because we deserved it or did something special or earned it. Paul's own testimony bears witness to that. Remember that Paul, while he was out busy persecuting the church, chasing Christians across the countryside, looking to kill them, looking to destroy the church, that's when God intervened in his life. God called him out of that life, out of that darkness, into a new life. 
God, uh, Paul knew that God had intervened in his life, and he was experienced of his. He was the recipient of a, a great grace. So it's not a prayer that the Thessalonians might become worthy enough to be called. They had already been called. So Paul prays that God Himself. But Paul prays here that God Himself might make them worthy of that calling. This means that these believers must grow in all the things that please God so that he is pleased with them and he finally judges them to be living up to the calling that that they were called to, the calling that they had already received. By grace, we have been forgiven. By grace, we've been made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. By grace, we've been justified. And all of that grace... All the benefits of that have been freely given to us by God. We did nothing to earn it or to deserve it. Like Paul, none of us is worthy of the grace of God in our lives. But after having been called, after having been the recipients of that grace, Paul wants us to become, and he prays to that end, that we would become what we, what we already are, that we are worthy of the calling of God. He prays that the Christians might become worthy of all that it means to be a, be a Christian. Be worthy, of all, be worthy of all it means to be the recipients of the grace that we've been shown on the, the cross. So looking at Paul's example again, it should be clear that our chief concern in prayer must not be that we might become wealthy or stay healthy, that we be successful or brilliant or triumphant or beautiful. Still less does Paul encourage us to pray that our problems will disappear. Paul's prayer is constrained by the framework that he brings to it. And he prays for more signs of the grace of God, which, is, which we have already been recipients of. And he thanks God for when he does see it. There will be a day when we'll have to stand before the Lord and give account for our lives. God will, in effect, ask us, what have you done with the salvation I bestowed on you? How have you responded to the way I graciously called you to myself? And have you lived up to that calling? We are to grow in Christian maturity, to be all that we are in Christ. And since we are already children of God, because of his grace that has been freely given to us, we now need to become those, the, the people that, that are worthy of that calling. That means that we should become increasingly holy, self-controlled, loving, generous, be men and women of integrity, willing to sacrifice for each other, become knowledgeable of the word of God and how it applies to our life. We should delight in trusting and obeying our Heavenly Father. But Paul knows something, and we see it in his prayer. He knows that we can't do that on our own. If God is to be cons- consider us worthy of this calling, we need his help. So Paul is not asking or telling the Thessalonians to try harder. He's not encouraging them just to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and go out there and work harder. That's not his prayer. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that God that God would make you worthy of his calling. So Paul isn't expecting the Thessalonians. He's not expecting us to make ourselves worthy. He was asking God, the power of the Holy Spirit, to do that for them. So that should affect when we, when we sit down and pray for each other. Does it look anything like what Paul is praying for? When we see someone who's going through some, some difficult time or struggling with sin or maybe falling short in some aspect of their character, do we pray that... And hope that they'll just do, you know, just respond and become better people. No, we need to pray and ask God to do that for them. It's not something that we can do on our own. Paul knew that, and that's the way he he prayed. Do you pray that way for your family, for your spouse, for your children, for others in this church? 
How much time and energy do we spend praying that our children will pass their exams or get a good job or be happy or not stray too far from, from home, that they will be safe and stay out of trouble? And how much time do we spend praying that God would make them worthy of the calling that he's placed on their lives? Paul continues with his prayer. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. Paul continues on here, and he's got another assumption that through our conversion, through our response to the gospel, that we have been completely transformed. The way that we look at life, the way we look at the world, the way we interact with the world should be completely transformed. We should have all new set of goals and objectives for our lives. Those of us who have been the recipients of grace and mercy, who've been been saved by faith in Christ, who've been justified and united with Christ, need to look different and act different and think different than the world around us. We need to have different objectives than all the non-Christians. We should view the world differently than our neighbors do. We should be looking for opportunities to show the love of Christ to those who are around us, looking for opportunities to share the gospel with those who are lost and without hope in this world. We should be asking and considering questions such as this. I wonder how I can witness to my neighbor. Is there some way I can show care and concern to the lady down the street who just lost her husband? How can I go about befriending the high school kids on my block? What can I do to welcome visitors to our church on Sunday? What days this month could we set aside to invite neighbors or co-works into our home for a meal? How can I use my time and my resources, my finances to support the church, its mission, and its objective to reach the lost and the needy in our community? And none of us can and should try to do everything. It's just not possible. But we can do something. If you listen to those questions, your first thought might be, are you kidding? My schedule is so full already. I can't possibly consider adding anything extra to it. If that's you, then let me ask you, what, what are you, what's filling up your schedule? What's filling up your time every week? We are obsessed with activity in our culture today. You know, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is in Job chapter 1, where Job's, Job's gone through all these difficulties, and he sits there, he's mourning, and his friends come, and they sit there for seven days. Seven days, and they don't speak. You know, if, I, uh, if I'm in a prayer group and nothing is said for two or three seconds, I'm wondering what happened to everybody. But Joe's friends came there and they sat for seven days and they waited. I'm sure they could have been doing lots of other things. I'm sure they had families that could have been spending time with them. We've got a lot of things going on in our lives. There's camping, there's outdoor activities, there's gardening, there's sports, there's music lessons, there's drama, there's speech. There's a club for almost every activity under the sun out there. There's computer gaming. There's unlimited entertainment options for us. So there's a lot of good things that we could be spending our time with, and none of those in and of itself is bad. We need to apply the test of time to our activities. 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now, What are we going to look back on and wish we could have changed? Do our calendars and the activities that we engage in, how we spend our time, have eternal value? We need to be engaged in eternal and kingdom activities. I want this church, the other leaders of this church, we want it to be a gospel-centered, kingdom-prioritizing community of believers. There are numerous examples, now I'm going to share just a few with you, where I see this being lived out in our church. We are a church that I think does a very good job of this. 
Bill Hurd and Mike Keller can tell you many, many times of the, where they've encountered different individuals on the, at work and where they've had opportunities to encourage those men to pray for them and to share the gospel with them. We have member, many members of this church who coach youth teams, uh, sports teams, and they don't see it just as an opportunity to, to help these young men and women grow in the, the skills of the sports. Although they do that, they also see it as an opportunity for how can I share the gospel? How can I help disciple? How can I help these, children, these boys, these young men, these young women grow in their faith? It's, a, it's an opportunity for discipleship for them. Many meals are provided for people when there's sickness and illnesses. When there's a baby, new baby in the home, many, many people spend time preparing meals and taking to them. The ladies in the prayer shawl ministry were over in the, in the other building just outside my office on Thursday. And a couple of them came into my office and asked me, who's, who's sick? Who's not feeling well? Who's, who's uh, going through a difficult time? And I was able to share with them quite a, quite a list of, uh, of, of folks who were, who were either sick or going through some difficult times. And they went back out there and they spent time then praying for these people. And then knitting and crocheting little goodies, blankets and hoodies and socks. I don't know what all they do. But they they were crocheting and knitting things that they then give to these individuals, give to these families. This is a reminder that we're aware of what's going on in your life. We're praying for you. We want you to be encouraged. One nurse, I was, um, one nurse in our church was recently asked to pray with another nurse before they began their shift at work. The next week, five people showed up for that prayer meeting. I've heard rumors that there's another nurse, I haven't had a chance to confirm this one, but somebody told me there's another nurse in our church who was asked to lead a Bible study for 12 people at Mercy Hospital. Dan Reeves is on a, a motorcycle trip in the, in the back country through somewhere through Arizona, Nevada, up into Utah with a, one of his cousins and a, a couple of friends. They're having a great time. Dan loves to ride motorcycles. He's spending some time with, with a family member, with, with friends. But I also know that Dan spent many, many hours preparing devotionals for every morning while they're out on that trip. Because it wasn't to be just a time to go and ride motorcycles. It was an opportunity in Dan's eyes to share the gospel with some unf- unsaved friends and an opportunity to encourage some of the other believers that were there with him. So Dan put in the time beforehand. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned several families who were teaming up to repair the roof of a home that belongs to a widow in our community. Pam and I have four widowers on our block, and that seems kind of weird because usually it's the the women who survive and the men die off. It's the exact opposite on my street. We have four, four men whose wives have passed, and we celebrate their birthdays together with them. We open up our home to them on holidays and other special occasions so that these men don't have to spend those days alone in their homes by themselves. In most cases... If you're listening to that, most cases, we don't have to really change the things that we're doing. It's just changing our outlook and our perspective just a little bit. How can I use what I already do to share the gospel? How can I use what I already do to encourage other believers? How can I use what I'm already doing to disciple young men, young women, older men, older women? So it's just, just a little shift in our thought pattern that needs to take place. It's not that we need to go out and do all sorts of different things, just looking for opportunities in the life and uh, in the things that we're already doing in life. You can talk to Dane or Dan Rees if you aren't sure how to do this in recreation. Talk to Seth Boeckley or Kevin Saylor if you want to curious about how to do that on the job. If you want to invite your neighbors in and, and welcome them in, talk to Pamari. We'd be loved to 
share some of the ideas that we have. So Paul continues to pray that God will fulfill every resolve, every resolve that these people had, every resolve that we have, that God will fulfill them for good and every work of faith by his power. So assuming that we're going to make that little shift in our, in our lives and in our minds, we're going to be looking for opportunities, if we're going to have spiritually minded purposes, Paul now prays for these Thessalonians and asks that God would make those purposes and uh, would take those purposes and make them fruitful and effective in, 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 life, in life. If you're like me, you probably have dozens of great ideas about how what we might do as Christians to reach out to others. Perhaps you have a great planner and you immediately go out to begin planning for an event. Could be maybe it's just dinner over at your house. You invite your neighbors over, but one thing you never do is you never stop and pray and ask God to empower that event. You don't ask for God's blessing on this well-intentioned goal. But unless God works in you and in us through those uh, uh, activities and those events, they may not ever result in any kind of sustained or, or, or enduring fruit. Unless the Lord builds the house, the psalmist says in 127, Psalm 127, it's builders labor in vain. I don't know about you, but I want to be a builder laboring in vain. I would love to see some outcomes, some fruit come out of my life and in my efforts. So unless the Lord fulfills our good, our faith-prompted plans, they can and might remain dry and fruitless and just empty dreams. Our lives will become full of activity, but there's going to be no life and no fruit as a result of it. So we need to carefully consider our schedules, our agendas, our priorities, our goals, our objectives. What should we be attempting for Christ's sake? What's our mission as Christians in Roseburg in 2021 in the midst of a pandemic and a rapidly changing culture? As we find answers to those questions, as the Lord prompts us and moves us, we need to pray and ask God that he, by his great power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would then bring those, those, uh, those efforts to fruition and that they would be, there would be fruit that comes out of those activities. Finally, Paul concludes his prayer with his goal of the prayer. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Paul, for Paul, his concern that Christians might be made and counted worthy of their calling and his desire that God will fulfill their good faith-prompted purposes is never the ultimate end. It's not the goal of this prayer. Those are good things. We should desire them. We should pray for them. We should go out and uh, pursue them. But this isn't about us. It wasn't about the Thessalonians for Paul. For Paul, everything is about God and about Christ and about his glory. The reason Paul prays that God would make us worthy of our calling and that God would empower our works by faith is what? So that the Lord Jesus would be glorified. And by those things, by the things that he empowers us to do. So it was about the name of the Lord. It was about the glory of God. In biblical times, a name was much more than a way to identify people, one, one individual from another. It was summed up, it's, and a name was summed up a lot more about that person, his character, who he was, what he did. Um, it, was, it's much, it, it had much more to it than we know today. So when Paul is praying that the Thessalonians would live in such a way that the glory is granted to the Lord Jesus, it's more, more than just proclaiming his name or a proclamation of his name. Rather, is there, there would be such virtue manifested in the lives of the believers, in the lives in our lives, 
and Christ-like character would be um, worked into us, that the glory that that the glory the, the the work that we do brings glory to the Lord because of who we identify. We are Christians. We are believers, and our actions should bring glory to God and not to us. And that's what Paul was praying for. That was the goal of his prayer, that these, that these people would, would grow and be worthy of the calling so that God might be glorified, so that Christ might be glorified. And again, it was something that was done to them, not by them. It was done to them and in them by the living Christ. He wanted them to be such a bright and shining testimony to the reality of their salvation that the only obvious thing to do was to glorify God for what, he was, what was taking place in their lives. So grace, it's operative in all of our lives. We see it when we first come to salvation. We were all sinners, fleeing from God. But God calls us out of death and into life. Grace is at work in the beginning of our lives in Christ. We know how it works. We understand how it works. Our being born again is by the will of God and God alone. We didn't merit being transferred out of death into life. So grace is at work in the early days of our salvation when we come to faith. Because of that, there's no reason to think that it doesn't stop there. Grace takes place, continues its work throughout our lives. And it will continue from beginning to end. We need grace when we were first saved. We need grace to grow. We need grace all through our lives. So I want my encouragement this morning that at the heart of all of our prayers, when we sit down and we pray, whether individually, within a family, in, in larger settings, that we would pray as Paul prayed. There are numerous passages in the scripture. You can look through the Lord's Prayer. When he says, you know, ask this day for our daily bread. In James, it talks about coming and praying for those who are sick. There are, it is right, it is just, it's good to pray for those things. But how often do we stop and pray that God would make us worthy of our calling? How often do we stop and ask God to help our friends grow in their faith, to see their love increasing? So if we're praying for our health, we're praying for uh, jobs, we're praying for uh, our kids to do well in school, let's also spend time praying for them, praying for each other, that our faith would increase, that our love would increase. And that we would be found worthy. At the end, we would be found worthy of the calling that God has placed on our lives. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul. For the many examples he's given us of how to pray. We thank you for his heart of thanksgiving. And it would be my hope and my prayer that we too would be very aware of your work in the lives of those around us, in our family members, our spouses, our kids, people in this church, people in the community. When we see their love increasing, when they see their faith growing abundantly, that we would stop and pause and give thanks to the one who's making that possible. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be people who are faithful to the calling that you've placed upon us. We want to be about the business of our God. We want to be about the business of growing this kingdom, sharing the gospel, making disciples. But Lord, we need your power to do that. You alone can make our efforts fruitful. So we pray that you would do that for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name.
Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.